Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Engin Arslan. Engin is a front-end web developer with a background in materials engineering and visual effects. Prior to his work as a developer, Engin worked as a visual effects artist slash technical director on a number of TV shows and films, including Tron and Resident, one, of the, uh, or one or two of the Resident Evil movies, and he received an Emmy nomination uh, as well as winning a Canadian Screen Award for his visual effects work on the show Vikings. Engin currently works at a digital services company based in Toronto called MyPlanet, and he is a part-time professor at Seneca College as well as a plural site author. You can follow him on Twitter at Inspiratory and learn more about his work on his website at enginarslan.com. Engin is the author of the LeanPub book, Coding for Visual Learners, Learning JavaScript with P5.js. The book and the accompanying course are designed to teach beginners to learn how to code in a way that is engaging and may be especially attractive to artists and visual designers who are looking to learn how to program, but will also be um, uh, you know, attractive to anybody who's trying to learn how to program. In this interview, we're going to talk about Engin's professional interests, his books, or his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and uh, you've got a pretty varied background, and I was wondering if you could tell us uh, how you got into materials engineering at university. I believe it was in Ankara. Um, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and how you made the transition to, you know, visual effects and Toronto. Uh, sure, yeah. So materials engineering was not really a deliberate choice. It was more of a choice that was inspired by uh, family, friends, etc. So I didn't really make that too consciously. So I can't really talk to that. <laughs> but uh, while studying that, I noticed, I knew I wanted to pick something related to engineering. But as I was studying materials engineering, I found it to be a little bit too theoretical for my liking and didn't really, it didn't really live up to my expectations. And at around that time, I figured I would like to do something more artistic, something that has a more visual component to itself. So um, I looked, I started to look for ways where I can express myself in that manner. And I started to consider graphic design for a while. Um, and then it didn't really materialize, but I started to take courses in university that was regarding design, like graphic design, interactive design, etc. And uh, through those courses, uh, I got introduced to 3D aspect of the things, 3D software such as 3ds Max, Maya, etc. And uh, that's kind of made more sense to me because I already had this technical background, uh, and I was looking for more visual expressions. And those uh, that domain, the 3D domain, seemed like a great way that I can um, actually express myself and uh, work in. So. I gradually made the shift, shift into there. And what happened is I was looking for, I started to look for schools that can actually educate me in that area. I wasn't really too comfortable with the idea of self-education at that point. Uh, but at this point, I'm much more comfortable with that. But I started to look at schools that can actually give me a solid foundation in uh, 3D. And uh, those schools tend to be more in North America. And I found a college uh, in Toronto and came to Canada to be able to study visual effects. And I studied visual effects at a college for like at a postgrad uh, at a postgrad uh, certificate program for a year. And then I started to work in the fields. 
I worked, I started to work in a smaller uh, commercial studio uh, where they were making commercials or like small TV shows um, and sports graphics mainly. And uh, after a while, I uh, found a job in a much bigger studio where they were working on future films. So uh, my first feature film was Resident Evil. And then I started to work continuously on movies from then on, like Tron, Thing, etc., as you mentioned, and worked in um, visual effects for five years before making the switch to web development. Yeah, I looked up your um, profile on IMDb and saw that uh, remake of The Thing, um, which yeah. I'm definitely going to watch because I love, I love the original. Well, the two, I mean, the, the original and then the first remake, I suppose, with Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, it's just such a great idea for a show. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions around that. I mean, what's it what's it like working on visual effects? I mean, I imagine you you know you don't visit visit the set or anything like that. But what's the communication like with say the director when you're doing visual effects work? Sure. I mean, uh, I think there are like some parts uh, or like some people in visual effects, like some departments that would actually be in closer communication with the director or would even actually be working on the set. But I was uh, more um, more isolated from that aspect of the things. Uh, I was far down below the pipeline where we were like closer to the delivery part of the things. But still, uh, you could have interactions with the director. Uh, some directors are more hands-on. Uh, they would actually l- prefer to communicate their vision directly by visiting the um, effects studio and come into the dailies, which are um, like these sessions where you would be watching the footage that that's worked on currently, and they would be giving their artistic feedback. Some directors would only be communicating with the visual effects supervisor, but some directors would actually be communicating with the artists as well to ensure that like the vision is realized um, in a like in a like correct manner, I should say. So um, yeah, like so you would like that communication can happen in various ways. And would you um, be given? Uh, I'm just very curious about how the. Are you said like you know create a stormy scene or something like that, and mm-hmm. then and then you just go off and use I mean your own imagination and your own artistic instincts to do something and then you iterate with whoever your contacts are. Uh, yeah, I mean uh, again, I think that really varies based on the workflow that's established or the director that you are working on. Some directors, I imagine, like would have a more uh, clear idea of what they really want but sometimes directors don't even know themselves what they want in that scene so it is more like a exploration phase for the visual effects studio because there is really no limit to what you can come up with so it is like sometimes you really start with a blank slate and try to figure out what would work um, for the director's vision and it is it is like actually one of the challenging aspects of it because uh, like if you are working with a direction, then it's fine. Uh, it makes you sacrifice original originality a little bit, but it gives you predictability and a better framework where you can work in. But if uh, you are working with someone that's not quite sure what he or she is looking for at the at that point, then it's a little bit more challenging and can get a little bit more frustrating as well because. Um, because that exploration takes a while sometimes. I imagine um, 
it must be a curious experience to work on, I don't know if you ever did, but on some gruesome scene. Um, uh, I remember, I mean, just warnings to anyone listening, you might want to skip the next minute or so, but I remember a scene in Resident Evil when a guy's in a hallway and this like grid of lasers comes down the hallway and cuts him into pieces. Um, and I imagine, you know, when I was, I was thinking about, about this interview in advance, you know, someone must have had to figure out like the algorithm for how to make the pieces fall um, and tweak it over and over and over again until someone liked it. Um, did you, did you ever have to work on something like that where you like, you know, we're like, what am I doing? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Uh, actually like most of the shows that we were working on were in that nature. Almost. I worked on, uh, strain, uh, the TV show and strain had a poster, I think, uh, in States where it had to be, it's, it had to be banned. Like it was too graphic to be displayed in public. Uh, and, uh, what else? Resident Evil was one of those shows for sure. Uh, and we worked on multiple installations of it. Tank uh, had moments like that as well. So uh, I think it was like a part of our job, almost job definition that like we needed to be comfortable working with those kind of visuals. I was luckily not, uh, not at the department where they actually had to collect references to be able to build these, um, build these uh, models or these, um, like textures, etc. like their surface qualities, right? Like those people actually would be collecting real life reference to be able to build these from, which I only had to go to that reference library once where we had it uh, in our computer system. And it was, it was not something that I would be comfortable working with, to be honest with you. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't have to work with that. So I was uh, like, again, maybe I was lucky in my career that looking back at it, I don't remember too many scenes where I was like, ah, I'm not really comfortable working with this one, except for a scene in the TV show Strain where, uh, again, a warning to the listeners, this might be a little uh, gruesome, but we had a scene where a worm was coming out of from someone's eye. So that was a little bit hard to work with and look at, uh, but that mean that's also meant less revisions because, like, I think supervisors didn't want to look at that as well. So they were like, "Okay, yeah, we approve this. Let's let's send it to someone else." Yeah, um, uh, it's uh, it's it's really interesting to hear about how things work in the background, um, and it must be um, uh, you know a sort of similar experience to be a writer. I imagine on one of those uh films or shows where you know people are sort of throwing like, gruesome ideas around all the time and just having to work them through uh in the in the room as a writer might be one thing you know you have the imagination in your head and it goes away but to then have to be like you know designing it and looking at it for hours and hours and hours must be a completely a completely different thing um yeah totally totally what kind of um technology did you use uh, so we would be using 3D animation uh, packages like Maya, Houdini, uh, 3ds Max. So these would be like some general examples. We were specifically using Houdini and Maya uh, for 3D animation. But then there are like other tools that works with other aspects of the production as well. So there are like really specialized tools that handles like the texture creation, for example, or texture painting, because um, 
software like generic uh, general purpose software such as Photoshop uh, that is for image editing doesn't really scale well for visual effects purposes. So um, they have more specialized software that works with compositing images or as I said, texture painting, etc. So yeah, like uh, for compositing, we would have a software called Nuke. Uh, for texture painting, we would be using something called Mari. Uh, most of these packages come from Autodesk, and they are all usually very expensive. And you were um, specifically, your title was lighting artist, I believe, or, or lead lighter. And can you explain a little bit about what the, that particular job entails? Sure, yeah. So uh, visual effects work is very uh, departmentalized. Uh, there are multiple departments that handle different parts of the workflow. And my job as a lighting artist and later as a lighting lead was to ensure that the 3D assets that we were receiving were looking realistic. They were helping us to tell the story and uh, they were well integrated into the uh, live action footage that we were receiving. So uh, we would be getting these grayscaled or like textured, roughly textured 3D assets that would be looking flat and unrealistic. They would basically look like 3D assets at that point, uh, but we would make them so that they would look realistic and believable. And was this when you started um, programming in Python? Uh, no, actually it happens the other way around. Uh, I, oh. Yeah, like so um, I, I took some programming courses. I'm not one of those people that started to program at the age of 10 or anything. I started really late actually. Uh, I, I had programming courses in university, but I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really fare well. I actually failed my programming courses the first time I took them. I barely passed the second time I took them again. Uh, but I didn't end up hating programming or anything. I just thought, didn't really reconsider it again for a long time. But uh, after starting to work in visual effects, I realized how much of the uh, how much of the pipeline or how much of the actual the entire industry was standing on the power of computation uh like the entire operation was enabled by the efficiencies that was gained by automation right or computers and we were using programs so like computer like computers was everywhere were everywhere and uh these software that we were using had uh their application programming interfaces uh, in python so i noticed to be able to to be able to get much more efficient at my work, I need to actually learn Python. Uh, and then the other reason was I was working with really smart people, and they uh, seem to be coming usually from computer science backgrounds, where like the people that I would generally look up to, where they were really good at problem solving skills, etc. I noticed they were coming from a more technical background, so to be able to uh, to be able to fare better at my job, but also to be able to have a little bit of commonality with those people, I decided I would like to get better at programming as well. Yeah, I remember. And, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, I was just then going to say, and then Python happens, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I was actually going to ask you about that um, episode where you say in your book um, how you um, took your first computer science course in university and you failed and you had to take it again. Um, and then you sort of stayed away from programming for a while. Um, and um, I was wondering what, 
was it something in the nature of the way programming was being taught to you that just didn't click for you personally? I think so. Uh, I mean, looking back at that time, I, like I don't even understand why that was the case. And taking the course second time, actually, I was trying to, I remember be, trying to be more deliberate about it, like trying to think what it is that's actually failing uh, in this course. Because I remember even in the first time that I was taking the course that, and it was uh, not like a, it wasn't exactly a computer science uh, class. It was more hands-on programming using C Sharp. And I remember um, going into the course and I was faring well up until a point and then everything just like was collapsing. And the same thing happened the second time as well. I don't remember at which point where things didn't really click for me. But I remember clearly that, oh, yeah, I get this. I'm faring well, actually. And then at one point, just things just stopped working. And I would be really curious, actually, to go back to that class and see what didn't really work. And, yeah, like I would say, it definitely had to do with how the material was being taught. Um, like it, it was a class that was being taught by teaching assistants. So uh, I don't think we even had a professor. It was more like a hands-on practice kind of a class. And the ratio of teaching assistants to number of students were really low. And I'm generally a kind of a person that doesn't really like asking for help. Um, at least it was... That was more the case at that time. And I think that contributed to the failure. But I also believe that something about the way that course was being taught didn't really communicate the power and joy of programming to me. And when you did um, return to programming and started, you know, realized you wanted to learn Python, how did you go about doing it at that time yourself? So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was around the time where uh, MOOCs, uh, massive online courses, was getting more popular as well. I remember uh, MIT Open uh, Courseware uh, was recently published. Not recently, actually. It was a couple of years old, but I think the potential was just being realized. And it was getting more and more common to see courses on these subjects that were open for everyone to use. And... Um, I still had a hard time starting off because I didn't have too much guidance and I didn't know how exactly to go about it. But I started off with uh, the MIT OpenCourseWare Python course, uh, which which was an excellent introduction, actually. It is a little bit more theoretical um, than I would have liked um, at least today like if i was learning a new programming language today i would go for something more practical and hands-on but that was the perfect course for me starting out because it actually uh it actually infused me with some love for the theory behind things as well and uh the instructors in the course uh th this was a course that is that was recorded live as they were teaching so you could actually see their um, attitudes inside the classroom uh, as they are teaching, not them just delivering the subject to you, as some online courses are nowadays, but you can actually see their way of teaching in the classroom as well. And you could read their passion towards their uh, towards their profession. And that really actually get to me as well. That really made me love 
uh, everything about it. I started to develop a taste for the culture, a taste for the theory, the backgrounds, the richness of it. And one thing actually that uh, really uh, stood out for me was these uh, instructors in MIT, they would be throwing uh, like small candies or chocolates to students for for them asking good questions. And that was like exact opposite of my experience uh, in learning programming or learning anything in university basically. So I actually uh, decided to endure or like apply that kind of approach in my teaching as well. And now when I'm teaching in college, uh, I'm doing the exact same thing. And uh, people seem to be really engaged with it. So I think how you teach things is really important as well, uh, besides the material. So are you at Seneca College, are you teaching an introduction to computer programming? Is that the kind of course that you teach? Yeah, I'm actually in the same program that I studied uh, visual effects in. So I'm at uh, Seneca College right now, and I'm teaching uh, visual effects artists uh, introduction to Python course. Okay, and was that the inspiration for your book and your and, and the accompanying course on Pluralsight? Or it's, uh, it's not on Pluralsight, sorry, There's that's a separate one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a separate one. Um, for this course, I think... Uh, I think this inspiration was mainly myself. I wanted to have something. I think this book came out of from my own frustrations in learning programming. Um, at least, uh, not necessarily when I was learning Python, but when I was learning JavaScript, I should say. Uh, because learning Python, I had a direct application uh, area for what I was learning, and that application medium was really visual. So I would learn how to do something and then I would be able to apply that in the visual effects software and there was like a really direct mapping as to what commands I'm running and what is being created afterwards and that was really engaging but when I started to learn JavaScript I couldn't really find good mappings in between what I'm trying to learn and what's happening on screen like I couldn't really find a good and engaging way of teaching myself the subject um, when you are learning and I started to think like if you are to teach JavaScript to a visual learner, which I kind of classify myself as um, if you are to teach JavaScript to this person, um, what they would like to see. And I was thinking to myself, well, doing dumb manipulation with using JavaScript is like not really engaging and wouldn't really be a convincing way of leveraging the power of programming for them. So I started to look for ways where uh, I could try teach programming to people in a more engaging manner. And I came across the P5.js library, uh, the uh, implementation of processing basically in JavaScript, uh, where like it is written in JavaScript from scratch. So it works in your browser. Uh, it doesn't have uh, any other dependencies, etc. So I found it to be a really great way uh, to teach programming. It showed really promise in my eyes and decided to write a course that would leverage that for teaching programming. Um. Perhaps it's a slight tangent, but um, you say you're teaching a course, um, uh, you know, for programming related to visual effects, and I was wondering what the what the scene is like for visual effects in in Toronto. Uh, so for visual effects, I think Toronto is a vibrant scene actually. Uh, just I think Vancouver is really good as far as I know. Um, 
Toronto seems to be really promising, almost actually, uh, almost on par with um, Vancouver. And one thing is the visual effects scene flourishes uh, with government incentives. And there seems to be strong incentives in Ontario for those kind of uh, businesses to actually set up a shop. So the scene is strong in Toronto, I would say, as far as I know. But I'm a little disconnected at this point because I've been out of the industry for two years or so. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That must have been uh, quite a big uh, change to move to, um, you know, web development from visual effects. It was, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was almost the second time that I was doing it. So I had some confidence that I could do it uh, because I regard my change from materials engineering to uh, visual effects as a career change as well. So I had some experience in it, but it still was a bit tough because this time I had no guidance uh, while I was teaching myself uh, uh, while I was teaching myself programming while working in visual effects I had guidance I had people that I can ask questions etc but trying to get into web development was a bit more lonely as a journey where um, I, I didn't even know what questions to ask initially so that was challenging for sure and where did you go to learn uh, so I'm trying to remember how that process happens. Like at that point, the online courses were much more abundant. So, uh, it was almost a problem of picking up the right choice versus finding resources. So, um, and when I'm learning something, I usually tend to actually pick multiple sources. I don't want to, I feel like it is really hard to filter down uh, things initially and judge them without even looking at them. So I would start off by picking up a resource that seems to have good reviews. But if for whatever reason that doesn't seem to work for me, I would just jump to a different resource uh, continuously until things start to click. And that was one way of going about it. But then the other things that were really helpful were um, being part of the community, going to the meetups, uh, going to conferences and asking questions there to the people to understand things that are a little bit not as obvious as what kind of a library or framework that you should be using uh, the culture like infusing yourself like uh, putting yourself into that culture and trying to suck it in just to be able to develop that understanding was really helpful as well and did you find that the community was welcoming oh yeah for sure uh community is great and I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to change a career because even though uh, visual effects is active in Toronto and it is as active as it could be uh, given like the global scene. There are like many studios here that are active, but you don't really see going into meetup.com all that many meetups where people gather, um, transfer knowledge, talk about their uh, work or talk about their uh, projects. And I found it to be a little limiting in career developments, but looking at uh, developments, uh, web developments around the same time, 
I saw it to be a really vibrant and inspiring community. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go into web as well, just because I saw it flourishing and inspiring and exciting. So I attended, I started to attend meetups or even go to conferences that I didn't know of the technologies uh, just because just because I wanted to get more context somehow. And I was liking the environment as well. And people were really receptive to like, uh, actually it was through those meetups that I was able to get my first job as a web development, uh, web developer. Um, so you've, um, you've written a book and you, you teach at a college and you've also, um, created a course for the, the, um, to accompany the lean pub book that you've written, but, um, you are also a plural site, um, Mm -hmm. course creator, um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that experience. I mean, did, did Pluralsight approach you? Do they have a professional crew that films you? Do they demand that you write everything out in advance? Uh, so scripting your online course is your choice. Uh, they don't really dictate it, but I find it to be a much more comfortable experience for myself. So I ended up writing everything for the preparation of that course, which I created for Pluralsight, which was on Casper.js and Phantom.js. Um, and I actually reached out to that to them because I was teaching at college level for a while at that point, and I wanted to actually have an experience in online teaching too. Um, and it's, I think I first established the contact and pitched them an idea and you go through an audition where, uh, they assess your way of teaching. And then after that, you are responsible for your entire production and they take care of the, I mean, there are, uh, materials that assist you during the production, but it's not like there is a prof professional production crew that helps you with the production. Um, it might be the case for certain courses, maybe. I'm not really sure, but the responsibility, at least for my experience, was mostly on myself, where I did my own recording, uh, creating the scripts, and uh, creating the audiovisual aspect of the things as well, like what's being seen on the screen, etc. So you actually had to go out and you know get your own, get your own camera and stand and, and everything to go along with it? Uh, I mean, the show, the, the tutorial doesn't really feature me. So, okay. uh, it is only a screen capture. I only had to get a microphone and, a screen recording software. So that's pretty much the only hardware that I needed to get this going. Okay. That's, um, that's interesting. I, I had assumed that there would be video of you standing there talking. Um, <laughs> uh, what actually I'm curious, what do you use for your screen capture software? Uh, I'm using ScreenFlow for okay. uh, screen capture. I'm on a Mac. I tried uh, Camtasia as well, but I found ScreenFlow interface in Mac works a little bit more fluently. Okay, okay. Um, on the subject of your book, um, I think it might be not necessarily the book, but on um, the book's website where you talk about how computation is driving one of the largest capital expansions in history. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you're, what you're getting at there. Uh, sure. Uh, I was afraid that you were going to ask for a refer- like reference for that, like where I'm getting my numbers, etc. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that's not the case. I remember that being a phrase that I read in an online article. I think it was the code article that was written for Bloomberg. Um, that was the feature article for an entire 
issue basically and uh i remember that phrase it wasn't ex exactly a phrase like that but i remember it's uh being my synthesis and being impressed by it and uh it's true that computation is changing our life fundamentally and i think paul graham has an essay on this as well where he's talking about how we would have expected this age to be like a nuclear age or space age but it happens to be the software age where we are digitizing everything and it is changing everything so fundamentally how we are interacting our uh, systems our uh, our lives so I think there is this, there is this, uh, there are these arguments regarding if you if you should learn to code or not as well. Uh, but apart from the practical implications of it, getting into that computational thinking mindset is really beneficial in this age that we are living in. I think, and there is, I feel like there is no way around it, even though that you won't be using coding for your day job there are no direct application points of it if you wanted to really get an understanding of how binary uh, systems work i think the most direct way of going about it is learning how to code and one thing one actually motivation in writing this book was also i was looking at other ways of learning coding other ways that coding is being pushed to people such as learning css and html and even though i think there are good ways of going about it as well because they can actually give you a real tangible product that you can work with uh, one issue that i personally had with those languages is that they don't necessarily give you the joy of programming uh, they are they are not really they are styling or markup languages. So they don't really allow you to build logic and allow you to think computationally. So I think JavaScript really needed to be part of that education, but it needed to be parts of that education in a really engaging manner as well. Not like in a manner where, oh, you can use JavaScript for that button to pop up a dialog box. That's really not speaking to the things that you could be doing with programming and um, other things that you could be doing with programming with JavaScript that are really impressive and inspiring could also be very tough to learn as well, at least initially. So I was looking for a really sweet spot in teaching um, coding and creating visuals around it seemed like a good way of doing it. But yeah, like regarding that phrase around com computation, I think it's a really important factor to remember that this is really a big part of our lives and we need to familiarize ourselves with it. And you could be reading about computation and trying to understand what it is changing and how it is changing it. But it's like reading about bike riding, I feel like you need to actually get on the bike and like try it a little bit as well to get a sense of what it is like and what you could be doing with it. Yeah, it's it's um it's really interesting to think about the nat the peculiar nature of our historical moment. I've got a sort of cocktail party line that I like to give, which is that, um, you know, we're, we're right just over the edge of prehistory, um, mm -hmm. and, and the beginning of recorded history. Um, because in a thousand years, I mean, assuming we make it, um, 
uh, you know, people are going to see the time before there were photographs and audio and the time before there were computers as just this time where of which we have, you know, written records and paintings and things like that. They'll, they'll, they'll relate to it in a similar way to the way we would relate to, you know, the time before writing was invented or something mm -hmm. like that, um, where we have, you know, stories about it. Um, but we don't have any actual, uh, we don't, we don't have the same kind of richness of an understanding that you can get when you can, you know, listen to someone talk or see them move around. Um, and there's an analogy for that with the invention of the computer um, and how that, I mean, a thousand years from now, how people will see how that was just fundamentally changed um, humanity. Um, I have a question um, about um, where you might see yourself 10 years from now, um, you know, given, you know, your engagement with, with teaching and creating courses and writing a book and, and things like that. Do you think that that's something you might end up doing full time at some point? Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, as I was working on this book and uh, online courses at the same time, I found myself wanting to do a little bit more coding at the same time. It felt like a trade-off. I, um, I was putting in the time to actually communicate what I know to other people so that they can actually enjoy uh, enjoy the joy of programming or enjoy aspects of this. But as I was doing it and uh, as I was deep into this process, I felt like I needed to balance as well. I need to keep learning for myself and put those learnings into applications and then maybe come back to teaching again. So I find, I think it would be more of a cyclical, uh, cyclical process where I do this and then I go back to learning for myself. I put that into use and then go back to teaching continuously is where I, where I see myself or what I see myself doing. Uh, great. Well, um, best of luck in the, in the rest of your journey um, or the next step, I should say. Um, uh, I have, uh, we don't have much time left, but I did want to ask um, why you chose to publish your book through LeanPub as opposed to the many other avenues you could have chosen? Uh, so LeanPub was uh, in, my, in my mind for longest time. I didn't actually even thought I would be publishing a book, honestly. Uh, this book came um, into life as I was creating a script for an online course, but then I noticed the script became so big that I can actually create a book out of it. And I started to look at tools that I can, um, like, do that kind of a publishing where I can convert my files into an ebook. And then I noticed LeanPub actually has great set of tools that allows people to easily self-publish. And I was able to then easily format the material that I have and put it on LeanPub. So I didn't really go through the lean process that LeanPub uh, Lean promotes where like you are actually publishing versions of your book, etc. When I decided to publish my book or when I actually noticed that I have a book, I was already finished with it. And I just uh, 
signed up to LeanPub and started to use the tools that it offers and it was really easy. Uh, basically, it was a good fit for what I was already doing. Uh, I was using tools uh, like Node.js, scripts, etc., to be able to shape my material into different kind of formats to be able to deliver it in different kind of mediums. And I just needed to create one more script for it to be suitable for LeanPub platform, basically. And um, if there were one feature we could build for you, um, what would that be, if you can think of anything? I think uh, having reviews and ratings could be useful uh, because there is not really a great way of assessing uh, the quality of the books or like the sentiments around the books. So I think having a more community aspect to it might be helpful uh, when you are actually choosing to buy books or it can be helpful for authors to promote their work as well if they if they think they can actually capture that kind of an audience so i think that's like one future that i would like to see in limpa yeah thanks for that that suggestion i'm working on um improving community in LeanPub generally and around individual books or an author um is something that we really want to do a lot more work on in the future um uh we do have testimonials that authors can add, so you can you know upload someone's picture and a quotation from them. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have ratings and reviews. Um, for us, um, reviews and ratings are slightly complicated by the lean publishing idea, because someone might you know write what what's the value of a review that's written when a book is fifty percent done, um, and you know if someone updates the book, should that clear out the prior <laughs> reviews? like I believe happens in the app store with apps. Um, but that then, if you choose that option, then it makes people want to not publish updates as often because it clears out all the reviews. Um, so there are a couple of, um, a couple of issues around mm, that. That's but, true. It, but it's definitely something about, there's definitely much more we can do in that area and giving people confidence uh, in the value and quality of the book is something that, um, we know is really important for authors. Um, well, thanks very much um, for taking the time to do this and for sharing um, your story and your, your thoughts with us. Um, and thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you. Thank you for having me.